Okay, so welcome everybody. How are you all doing? We did win, it's true. Um, I was actually today in Boston at the parade. Nice. Yeah. So, you didn't see me? I was right there. Um, so yeah, I think there was a million people in Boston today. Four times more than the Women's March, go figure. Um, yeah, so it was really cool, it was beautiful, it was cold, um, snowy, then slushy, then ticker tape everywhere, then lots of people screaming, lots of people drinking, lots of funny events happening. Um, and it was really cool for me to, to kind of be in the city for something like that. I don't know if it's because I've been away for so long, but I guess just being from Boston, I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm like entitled to say, like, yes, this is my team that won. So, yeah, it was really, really beautiful, really exciting. Um, and when I got home, I kind of felt like I had just returned from a war zone a little bit, right? So just exhausted, like dripping wet. I sat down. I was like, oh, my God, it feels so good to sit down after all that, be quiet. Um, and also I had this really, really interesting moment while I was, it was kind of, um, kind of this very surreal moment, I think. So I was sitting there or standing there, this crowd of people, right, everyone's around. And, um, you know, the duck boats were going by with the Patriots on them and Bill Belichick's duck boat went by and Tom Brady's duck boat went by. I think uh, it was just after the Gronk duck, duck boat went by. That, um, that they shot from a cannon all of the ticker tape, right? And, um, and it was this really cool moment, right? So it's kind of like a little snowy, flurry kind of stuff. And then just this wall of, of red and blue confetti kind of coming from the sky. Um, and I'd only seen stuff like that, I think, when I saw, you know, old like World War II, like when they came back from World War II kind of things. Like, I don't know why that's what came into my mind was just a city-wide celebration and these people like on tank-looking devices going through the city and everyone cheering and ticker tape everywhere, right? So I don't know why I felt like World War II, like that soldiers arriving home kind of feeling. Um, and I had this really surreal moment where I kind of realized like, wow, these, these eyes have seen a lot of things. It just kind of came up that like, these eyes have seen a lot of things. Um, it was actually funny because I, I showed Shannon a video that I made and, uh, and she picked up and she looked at my phone and she's like, this phone has been through a lot because I brought this phone to India and to Australia and so my phone has been like, you know, across the Himalayas and all this stuff. It's a little iPhone 4. Right? Um, but I guess everywhere the iPhone's been, I've been too and probably more so, right? So, and it reminded me of actually something that the Buddha once spoke about, um, that one of the, the main disciples of the Buddha was actually passing away. I believe this was Anatta Pandika, so this was one of the main, um, what's the word? Somebody who gives a lot, like a beneficiary, a, what would the word be of somebody who? Benevolent. 
benefactor. A benefactor, benevolent. So he like he he bought the first monastery for the Buddha. He bought the first ground for them to build the monastery for the monks. And he kind of really gave. He was very rich. He was very wealthy. Um, his name even symbolized how he gave a lot to the poor, and he really helped a lot of people. And it's really kind of amazing because one day somebody was coming past, and Nath Bandika, he said to them, you know, where are you going? And they said, I'm going to go see the Buddha. And Nath Bandika's like, the Buddha? You know, what's, what's the Buddha? Who's the Buddha? You know, and they said, he's the fully awakened one. And... Um, and Anath Pandika, it's in the story, he almost feels very childlike in this, you know, he's like, can I come too? Like, suddenly he's really excited. So he travels to the place where the Buddha is, and it was kind of getting nighttime, so they said eventually, you know, you'll have to wait till tomorrow, the Buddha's, you know, it's nighttime, so he'll come back tomorrow. So he kind of was waiting, I think they were staying somewhere near the forest, or in the forest. And Anath Pandika, he... He got, was so excited he couldn't sleep and he kind of got out of his hut and he started walking through the forest in the dark towards where the Buddha was and he got afraid and he turned back. And again, he was waiting, he got really excited. He's like, ah, and he tried again and he kind of again became afraid and went back. And Then finally he kind of went and he came across, uh, he finally came across the Buddha doing walking meditation in the jungle. And saw the Buddha and, you know, prostrated at his feet. And, um, and he said to the Buddha, you know, can you can I have you over for a meal? This is what they do. So in India, for a lot of the ascetics, a lot of the spiritual teachers, is they have them come to their house and they offer them a meal and a place to stay. So Anath Pandika um, was granted this request. The Buddha said, yes, I will come and, you know, whatever, three days' time, five days' time, I don't know what it was. So Anath Pandika's really excited. Oh, my God. And he kind of starts going home, and along the way, everywhere he said, he said, the Buddha's going to come in three days. Everyone be ready. The Buddha's going to come. You know, so he was like, as he was like, going home, spreading the word, you know, down this like long road through all these towns. I don't know how how long his trip was. It may have been days. Really excitedly, and you know, he gets home and he starts making preparations, and he passes the park of this one prince, Prince Jetta, and this was like the prince's pleasure grove, right? So it's this really big, beautiful, green, lush kind of grove. There's peacocks walking around. It's kind of like water. It's this really amazing kind of beautiful tropical, like resort park almost. And Anath Pandika said, I, I want to buy that for the Buddha. Like, I want to have it. So he said, he said to, he found Prince Jetta, and he said, how much for your park? And Prince Jetta kind of laughed, and he said, yeah, you know, if you, if you cover it with gold, that much gold. And Anath Pandika said, okay, I could do that. And he went, and he cleared all of his treasure stocks, and he laid gold coins end to end and covered the park. And Prince Jetta was so moved by what he saw, by the devotion of his man, that he said, okay, okay, you can take the park, and I'll even build a big, beautiful entranceway for you. Just because I'm so moved by your devotion, I now also want to offer something. So they built this, it's called Jettavana Grove, and this is the first um, place for the monks that was ever given to the monks, to the Sangha. And eventually they had right the first monastery there, Jetta's Grove. So a lot of the teachings from the Buddha, they take place in this grove, Jettavana Grove. And uh, throughout, you know, a lot of the Buddhist canon, a lot of the stories, there's many, many interactions between Anattapandika and the Buddha, and he's really his, you know, greatest follower, all these things. And eventually when he was dying, he's passing away, he was sick. And, um, the Buddha was somewhere, so the Buddha, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't able to, um, 
to, to attend the deathbed of Vedanta Pandita. Uh, and I believe he sent one of his disciples, Shariputra, um, kind of with the teaching. And something along the lines of he sat by him and he said, you know, these eyes, these eyes that you're looking through, these eyes have seen many forms. These ears have heard many sounds. This body has, has felt a lot. This mind has experienced a lot. Yeah. All things come and all things go. None of them were yours. None of them belong to you. None of them are you. Pretty much just saying, all of these sensory organs, all, our mind, our hearts, all of these things are coming and they're going. They're coming and they're going. But that's it. They come and they go. They come and they go. It's not me. It's not mine. You can't keep that stuff. It doesn't belong to you. And it's just this nature that things come in and they go out. And kind of by the end of this, Natvandika, he started sobbing. He said, this is the most beautiful, clear teaching I've ever received. And then kind of with that, he passed away. And then in the Buddhist canon, they also say that he right away went to a, a heaven realm and suddenly reborn in the angels of radiant splendor and then immediately arrived back and bowed in front of the Buddha. And monks who were able to see different energies were like, Buddha, like, what is this shining being in front of you? He's like, that's Natvandika. He passed away. And with this teaching, he shot all the way up to this high heaven realm and just came down to pay respects and say goodbye and thank you. And so, so in Buddhism, there's you know, the rebirth and you can go through the different levels. So. Like in the Christianity and Judaism, you could go to heaven or hell. Um, in Buddhism, you could also be a ghost or an animal. But that's not it. That's not the end of the story. That once your time is done in those realms, then you can come back and you could also be a person again. You could be something else. So there's this whole traversing from one place to the other again and again. So it's, again, lots of things coming, going. You, you go through a lot, but none of it's your final resting place. None of it's really yours. And so when I was sitting there, standing there, in this ticker tape parade, and there's this music playing, and there's people pushing and jumping and drinking, and Tom Brady waving, and this whole thing. Um, and it was, yeah, so this this really amazing moment where I kind of just looked around, and it was just this really powerful feeling of um, these eyes. These eyes have seen many things. And in that moment, I was totally present, and at the same time, I totally knew in a couple hours this is not going to be real anymore and there's going to be something else. And, um, and when I was in the monastery, I actually wrote a poem one day. I think, I think I was reflecting on the same thing. It's a very, very, very short poem. But, and I wrote, um, Allow the world to touch your heart. To feel a pain, it cannot stop. To feel a beauty, it cannot keep. Allow the world to touch your heart, to allow your heart to be set free. And it was really this experience that the heart feels beauty and pain. That was somehow this experience I had, that the heart just feels beauty and pain on different levels. It's about beauty and pain. And Sometimes we try not to feel some pain because it's too painful or we think it's going to destroy us or we don't want to accept it. And I noticed for myself, so I'd be watching these you know, beautiful sunsets in the forest in Germany just over all alone. And I realized that it was painful for me, strangely. I don't know if anyone else feels this, but 
it was so painful, as beautiful as it was, the intensity of the beauty was equal to the pain I felt, that A, I couldn't share it with somebody else, that it was just kind of like, that was just, I, uh, like I felt there was other people that really needed to see this right now. But also to know that it's gonna kinda come and go, like I can't keep it. I wanted it to stay, I wanted more of that, I really. And I kind of suddenly had this feeling that in my heart, it's always either <coughs> chasing beauty, trying to hold on to, pull in, create, get, keep, keep, this idea of keeping, holding beauty. Or it's trying to get away from pain, trying to not feel things, trying to move it away. And when you've really deeply realized how things are always changing, how, how these eyes have seen a lot, this body has felt a lot, we've all been through a lot. We've all been through unimaginable sorrows and unimaginable beauty. And probably right now, at this very moment, a lot of us have a lot of sorrow and a lot of beauty in our lives as well. And that's also going to run its course in whichever way. And it's always just kind of moving. And ultimately, if we really knew that, if we really knew that, would we not keep ourselves fully open to be present in all that we experience, to really fully be present in our lives with an open heart, to really feel it, and to not be afraid of anything, to not be afraid of the pain, and likewise, to not be afraid of losing the beauty. I think there's people that are actually afraid to feel really happy also in some ways. Exactly, if you feel that, then what happens if I never feel that again? And this would allow our hearts to, to find this place of freedom, that you'd really be fearless, you'd be unshakable, you feel everything that comes in regardless. So this idea of, of change, of impermanence, of, of temporariness, of our, of our situation. Um, in Buddhism, this is one of the core tenets. And this again, so for me, Buddhism, it's not it's not a religion in the sense of, um, I didn't take it as, as a dogmatic belief. There wasn't so much that was told to me that said, this is now your new truth, you believe this? It's more that they say, go reflect on change. You know, so I was given uh, an assignment kind of, go, go reflect on change. And after reflecting on change for long enough, I said, change is the only thing that there is. Everything, the universe is expanding, it's probably gonna collapse again. Every part, particle, all the molecules, all the electrons, like on the microcosm, on the macrocosm, wherever you look, everything is changing. You look in nature, everything is changing. It's the only truth that I could actually find was the truth of change. And it's not even the truth of birth and death, because also birth and death are bullshit, if you really think about it. If you, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh once very poignantly said, if you take a piece of paper and you burn it, he says, it doesn't go away, he said, it transforms, that paper becomes smoke, and it becomes ash, and it becomes light, and it becomes heat, and it becomes gases. So nothing, that paper didn't go away, that paper just changed. He said one could even say that that paper now has five new, right, like, uh, you know, rebirths. That paper is now reborn as ash, it is reborn as smoke, it is reborn as light, right? So. It's now all these new things. It's become all these new things. And if you trace that paper back in time, you know, where did that paper begin? Was that when the, 
when the lumberjack was cutting down the tree to make that paper? Or was it the sandwich the lumberjack's wife prepared for him in the morning? So, so if you take that piece of paper, is that paper the lumberjack? Is it his wife? Is it the truck he drove? Because without those things, there'd be no paper in your hand. Or is it the sun? Or is it the rain or the seed, the tree that dropped the seed before it? And when you start to trace things back, you also can get to the place where you see there's no real beginning for something. You know, there's no, there's no place that it actually started. So actually, when this election happened and everybody was really crazy about this election, how could this happen? Right away, I just looked at it and I said, well, this election didn't just happen. The causes and conditions that created this election have been building up for many, 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 many years. This is now the expression of something, but that, the wheels were set in motion long ago. You know? And somebody actually asked the Dalai Lama, he said, you know, so Tibet has been taken by China, there's this big war. He said, ultimately, was this a good or bad thing for the Tibetan people? And the Dalai Lama said, too early to tell. And this is, you know, 40 years after, 50 years after it happened, and he still says, too early to tell. Right? That's wisdom, because he says, yeah, it's still to be seen, it's still going, right? We don't know. So when the Buddha spoke about this as one of these main reflections, he said, um, it's called the, in one of his stories, it's the simile of the elephant's footprint. Because he said of all the footprints, these monks, they spent a lot of time in the jungles and the forests of India, really like living on the land. So they used sometimes nature similes like this. So he said, if you go in nature and you see the footprints, he said, reflecting on change, on change, on how things are coming and going, he said, that's like the elephant's footprint. He said, just as the footprint of the elephant is the greatest footprint you'll find in the jungle, and just as all the other footprints can fit within the footprint of the elephant, he said the same way, the reflection on change, the reflection on impermanence, the reflection on temporariness, he said that's like the elephant's footprint for your mind. He said that if you can really understand this, if you can really see how, how essential, how basic, how, how elemental, how integral change, transformation, movement is to everything around you, your whole life, your whole experience, how you cannot even separate those things, that they are the same thing, that all we experience is change, change from one to the next, change and change every moment, moment to moment, change. He said if you can really experience that fully, uh, this is kind of like one of the greatest boons you can have, one of the greatest realizations that you can make, actually. Because once you've realized that, you know, how easy is it just to let go? How easy could you really be at peace? The more, the more you learn how to let go, just to accept, to be present, then, then there's no problems anymore. Um, we stop holding on. Jack Cornfield said very poignantly, when you hold on too much in life, you get something called rope burn. Right? So it's like you're trying to hold on and things keep changing. So imagine you're holding this rope and it's being pulled out of your hands because it's, no, sorry, it's going to keep changing. And you want it to stay, but it keeps changing and it hurts. And actually, if you reflect on all the hurts, all the sorrows, all the pains of your life, and of course, there's some actual pains, like, you know, if you punch me in the, punch me in the leg, that's a physical pain, right? But a lot of the pains that we experience in life, especially the emotional pains, the mental pains, if you really look deeply at them, you'll probably be able to see that a lot of these come from 
A, because you're getting something you didn't want to get. Something's coming that you don't want. You don't want to accept that. You don't want that to be the reality right now. Or there is something you want, but you're not getting that thing. That's not like that. Um, and more often than not, it's something that there's something we want that's not happening or something we don't want that we are getting. And it's really that simple, actually. It's that simple. Like For the next, next time in your life, even if it's today, if you're sitting, even if you're sitting here right now and you're suffering, really look and say to yourself, like, what is it that I'm not accepting about the reality of this moment? What is it that I'm not accepting? You know, is somebody sick that I want to be better? Am I sick I want to be better? Is the room's cold, I want it to be warm. It's snowing, I want it to be sunny. I'm in Massachusetts, I want to be in Florida. What is it? And you'll generally see that, that on some level you're, you're at war, you're at odds with reality, with the present moment. Yeah? And again, this isn't about being completely, you know, it's not like passive and everything, because we are also co-creators, right? We also act, we are actors, we also do things in our life, right? Like we create things, so of course there's also a very active element to our lives. You have to also do, do things, right? But to really look clearly and see that so much of our suffering is actually our own response to what's going on. Yeah. To our own inability to let things in. To not see that that is also part of everything. To see that it all belongs. Um, Joseph Campbell has a quote that I completely forget. But it has something to do with, um, with how one is not fit to live in this world if they are not able to, to accept and to make peace with, I think he said something like the, like the, the divine chaos or the divine catastrophe and the catastrophic divinity or something. So it wasn't those exact words, but about how those two, both of those things exist, the beauty and the pain, they exist and they exist in everything. And... Um, and in each of us, even though some people like to focus more on one part or the other, or show one part than the other, right? A lot of us like to show, like, oh, I'm a very beautiful, good person. We like to show something, and then it creates the tension because actually there's something back here that, that's not, you know. I tell you, like, so as a monk, so I was a monk for eight years, you can imagine, like, what people projected on me as a monk and thought that I should be this great, holy, whatever person, you know think I should always be there for them. Oh, Seth, can you come? I need someone to talk to. And I said, no, I can't. I'm exhausted. I'm going I'm to go and sit in my room. What do you mean? You're, you're a monk. You're supposed to always be there for people. No. You're so selfish. And I was like, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I love myself. I need to do things for me, sure. Yeah. And then they, you know, all this stuff, all this dark kind of negativity, because you're not there for me, right? Yeah, or I'd get angry at them, right? Someone says to me, I get angry. You're a monk. What do you mean? How are you angry? You're a monk, right? Because I'm a person, right? And I think the problem is when, when we see people in only their perfection and also if we see people only in their negativity, right? Both of these are actually problems. Because a lot of us like to do also that opposite. We love to demonize. We love to turn that outwards. And, and attack outwards and put all that stuff outwards to, to not have to see it in ourselves, right? That we feel higher when someone else is lower. 
right? That's a really easy way to elevate your position for the ego is to bring somebody else's position down. If you can't get up, those people that are having a bad day, they bring everyone else down so they feel better, right? Yeah. So I think uh, for today's class, for today's meditation, for the time that we're here together, um, maybe we'll, we'll do a sitting, then I can answer some questions on meditation, maybe if anyone has, and then we'll do a walking and then another sitting. But, um, but for the remainder of that, for the remainder of the class today, and hopefully even for the remainder of the week, I don't know if I can like give you guys impulses for the whole week to reflect on. Um, and then by next class, I don't know, maybe you'll be enlightened or something. But for the remainder of this class, to really try to be present with yourself, with your experience, and to really see in your heart what is it in this moment or even in my life, in the bigger sense of things. Is there anything that I'm actually fighting against? Is there anything that I don't accept? Is there anything I'm trying to change or bring in? Is there anything that, that I'm not accepting? Um, I think the teacher in Asagada, he said, the problem isn't that, um, that you want too much. So the problem isn't that you want too much. The problem is that you don't want enough. Because imagine if you wanted the pain, if you wanted the sadness, if you wanted the grief, if you wanted every single thing that you experienced, if you wanted that, there'd be no problem. Yeah? So it's like a little bit of a, a shift of perception there, right? So what if you actually play, play that game in your own heart, in your own mind, and say, all of it, I want it, give it to me. Let me experience fully my life. Give me the whole thing, the full spectrum. Let me be present, let me feel that. And let me know that my heart is indestructible, that you give me the biggest pain and I'm still here. Yeah. And then you give me the biggest beauty and I'll see that it also fades away. Yeah. And to know ultimately, yeah, things keep changing, we keep going. And that's really how you find peace. So a lot of people think that peace has to be happy. But peace isn't actually necessarily the happy or the sad. Peace is more knowing that happy and sad are cycling through, like day and night, like seasons, like temperatures, like things come and go, right? The happy and the sad. And peace is really being able to be present with both. And when you're really able to be present with both, then a deeper thing sets in, a deeper equanimity sets in, where you start to get peaceful. And peaceful with something outside of the realm of happy and sad. You know, happy and sad are these temporary emotional things that come up and touch your mind. But this deeper peace, this is born out of wisdom, this is born out of experience. This is a, this is a deeper relationship to reality, to your inner and outer reality. Yeah. So ultimately, that's the direction this practice should lead you in, right? So it's not just about coming here, sitting, breathing, relaxing, then jumping back in your car, turning on music, eating potato chips, and driving home, right? It's about slowly marinating in these understandings, these realizations. And they start to really sink into the core of our being, really sink into our hearts on a deep level that they really transform us, right? And that we really can start finding peace in all of life's situations, not just when we're happy, not just when things are going well, but to really start to find that peace wherever we are, whatever we're doing, yeah. So this can be like a background reflection for today's class as we practice. So we can get into our sitting positions. <clears throat> 